You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. This month, more and more people get the opinion that we are facing the same neurobiological disorder, sometimes activated by peripheral trauma and sometimes by a mental trigger. We talked to the co-author of a review on movement disorders following peripheral injury about what she's inferred about the pathophysiology of these conditions. And we, we had the hypothesis that if use of the limb was relevant, then you would expect to find that the disease uh, in someone who's getting disease in that region, you'd expect to find it more likely to be in the side that they use more. The link between athleticism and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. Martin Turner tells us about his investigations into whether there is a direct or indirect connection between the two. But before that, how much do we understand about movement disorders which occur after peripheral trauma? Movement disorders following head trauma are well recognised, but we know much less about those following peripheral injury. A systematic review in JNMP of cases of these peripherally induced movement disorders, or PIMDs, delves into their features, possible pathogenesis and response to treatment. Diana van Royen from the Leiden University Medical Centre in the Netherlands co-authored the report and she's on the line into the studio now. So hello Diana, thanks for, for coming on the podcast and, and telling us more about the work. Thanks for having me. So, so first off, could you briefly explain what the, the main features of these PIMDs are um, compared to standard movement disorders and also what their current understanding of their pathophysiology is? Yes. Well, the phenomenology of the peripheral-induced movement disorders overlaps with standard movement disorders. All types of movement disorders have been reported. For example, dystonia, tremor, myoclonus and Parkinsonism. In contrast with the standard movement disorders, there are two main differences. Firstly, the peripherally-induced movement disorders are associated with peripheral tissue or nerve injury, whereas the standard movement disorders initiate directly from the central nervous system. Secondly, the spectrum of peripheral-induced movement disorders is clearly dominated by a higher prevalence of dystonia, especially the fixed type, which is characterized by sustained abnormal postures. As for the pathophysiology of this condition, this is currently poorly understood, which in part explains why this topic is considered controversial. Different views have been forwarded. One view supports a psychogenic origin of this condition. Other views support an organic origin. One hypothesis suggests that in response to an altered sensory input associated with a peripheral trauma, spinal sensory motor circuits reorganize their anatomical and functional connectivity, which in turn may lead to the development of movement disorders. Against the background that trauma may have a high prevalence, the rarity of peripheral movement disorders may suggest differences in genetic susceptibility between individuals. Um, and so, w- with these movement disorders being relatively rare, you managed to evaluate 133 studies with um, 217 cases. Uh, so, clinically, what were the most important features that you found? First of all, we found that dystonia was the most reported movement disorder, with fixed dystonia being me- more common than mobile dystonia. The second important result from this review is the high number of patients that reported pain, namely 86%. Pain preceded the onset of the movement disorder in approximately 20%. More than one-third had complex regional pain syndrome, or CRPS. CRPS is a condition in which patients develop pain after a sometimes minor injury, in combination with sensory, autonomic, trophic, and motor symptoms. Interestingly, in the patients without CRPS, pain was an important feature as well. 
Finally, sensory impairment of the affected body parts was described in about 40% of the patients, whereas a nerve lesion was identified in 25%. And, and you said that there was this idea that um, these movement disorders have a, a psychogenic origin. Um, what, what did you find in relation to that, looking at these cases? Well, 35% of all patients, that is about 250 patients, a psychogenic origin of this movement disorder was considered, half of which were actually diagnosed with a psychogenic movement disorder. The majority of these had either a conversion or somatization disorder. Interestingly, the majority of articles did not report on psychiatric or psychological features in these patients, which may suggest that the role of these factors was neither conspicuous nor considered a likely cause in the eyes of these authors. So far, no objective instrument has been developed to discriminate between a psychogenic and organic movement disorder. The question is whether we should keep focusing at this dichotomy. Sure. And, and you had um, one idea about how the, the peripheral injuries might interfere with the normal sensory processing, um, which you postulated in, in the review. And this was that these injuries could eventually lead to, to spinal or supraspinal reorganisation. What, what led you to that idea? Well, we know that a vascular compression of the facial nerve can be the cause of muscle spasms that can be alleviated by decompression surgery. Additionally, in contrast to the standard movement disorders, the majority of patients with a peripherally induced movement disorder have pain and sensory disturbances. Although this does not support a causal role for the initiation of the movement disorder, we learn from animal models that nerve injury can lead to central changes, which in turn uh, influence the motor functioning. And, and what about the, the treatment of these uh, movement disorders? How, how did you find they responded? Well, many movement disorders were described, uh, which in consequence led to a variety of reported treatments. Uh, since botulinum toxin was the most reported medication, we focused on this outcome. And in 20% of the patients, the treatment, this uh, treatment was considered successful, which is in large contrast with the drugs effect in standard movement disorders. The poor response could in part be due to the fact that patients may have developed contractures, which may limit the effect of botulinum toxin. Since botulinum toxin was especially applied to patients with fixed dystonia in extremities, where usually multiple muscles are affected, another explanation could be that it's more difficult to obtain a satisfactory result in these cases, as compared to the standard dystonic syndromes, where usually less muscles are involved. Mm. Given the fact that this is a very potent toxin, the poor response encountered in many cases may also be interpreted as an argument against a psychogenic cause of peripherally induced movement disorders. Did you look at any other treatments? Did you find anything that seemed to be more successful? Well, based on the results of this review, it's not easy to answer this question since we did not examine all the types of treatments across all described movement disorders. Uh, however, a multidisciplinary approach is to be advised to treat all types of symptoms, uh, including the reported pain. And this review shows also that in most studies, not all characteristics related to the movement disorders were adequately described and were probably not evaluated either. So for an optimal treatment strategy, we advise to carefully examine all features of the movement disorder, so including additional neurophysiological examination, psychological or psychiatric assessments, and also potential predisposing factors. So, so could you sum up um, the big questions that you think need to be answered about this group of movement disorders? Obviously, it seems like we've got a, a lot of work to do, but what are the, the next big questions that you think should be addressed? 
We need a better insight in the mechanisms that underpin these movement disorders, with the ultimate goal to optimize treatments. The first step would be a better understanding of the contribution of both organic as well as psychogenic factors in the onset and maintenance of peripherally induced movement disorders. This highlights the need for the development of quantitative assessment tools or biomarkers. Um, well, thanks very much for, for coming on and, and telling us about this, this step towards that. Thank you. Diana Van Royen there. Next, research in August JNMP has looked into the suspected link between athleticism and ALS. What has it uncovered about the connection? There's evidence to suggest people with ALS are more likely to be athletic. However, why this correlation might be is not fully understood. Could exercise have a direct physiological effect, or perhaps an indirect one, through, say, the genetic profiles underlying ALS and athleticism having common components? August's patient choice investigates the idea that exercise does have a direct role by seeing if handedness, and so increased use of the arm, is related to the side of upper limb disease onset. Dr Martin Turner from John Radcliffe Hospital, Oxford, was one of the group who put together the report and he joins me on the line now. So, hello Martin, welcome to the podcast. Hello. How, how certain are we that ALS patients are more likely to be athletic? I think that still is unproven. I think the problem is that as clinicians seeing a lot of patients over many years, we're anecdotally very drawn to the idea that all our patients seem to come from a background of fitness. Um, Many patients will say they particularly can't understand why they would get a neuromuscular problem because they'd always been particularly fit in terms of their muscle activity. But actually when you do studies called case control studies looking at whether patients are more athletic, the jury is still out really. There are a number of studies that have have shown that's a positive thing and uh, at least as many studies showing no difference between uh, cases and controls. So I think it's difficult and and the problem with those studies is patients uh, are being asked to remember something that um, in the context of a very serious illness and that's something called recall bias Uh, and also we're obviously biased in the people that we're asking because of the population that we're seeing so I think it's it's not yet established really beyond anecdote albeit extremely strong anecdote uh, for most of us that our patients are definitely fitter. If we do assume that there is this link um, what evidence do we have that exercise directly causes or, or helps progress the disease? I think assuming, as I do, that there is something going on with uh, our patients coming from that sort of background, there really isn't strong evidence that exercise uh, causes this. It's important for patients to to realise that I don't believe this disease is something that an individual has done or provoked, uh, or Mm. in that sense could have been avoided. And Although exercise very clearly doesn't seem to improve the disease, there is no evidence that it's harmful in an established patient. And, and I think going back to the idea of exercise provoking the disease, again, seems to me to be one possibility if our patients are fitter. But I'm also equally drawn to the idea that perhaps our patients come from a background uh, group of people, a much larger group of people, who, uh, by virtue of the way they're put together, whether it be their brain put together, my own personal interest, uh, or their metabolic profile, makes them able to be athletic. There's not the feeling that the two co- one causes the other. They're an association. So it may be that our patients come from the sort of person 
who is fitter when they're younger, but that's actually not necessarily uh, related to the cause of their illness. Sure, okay. And and what about the the focus of ALS onset, whether it's upper or lower limb, speech swallowing, etc.? How much do we know about this? And are there any clues there as to the athleticism? That's what drove our, our study here, is really... When we look at the onset, it roughly divides randomly into three, uh, so upper limb, lower limb, or the speech and swallowing so-called bulbar areas, and, and really that falls very nicely into a one-in-three pattern. We, we had the hypothesis that if use of the limb, athleticism, uh, fitness, um, overworking a limb was, was relevant, then you would expect to find that the disease Uh, in someone who's getting disease in that region as their first symptom, you'd expect to find it more likely to be in the side that they use more, which would be their dominant side. And and so very simply, you looked at this with 334 patients with uh, limb onset ALS and you asked them if they were left or right-handed and also footed. So what did you find there? Did, Did you discover a correlation? Yes, so um, there is a very strong correlation in patients with uh, disease onset in their upper limbs. There's a very strong correlation with uh, it being in their dominant limb for writing. What we didn't find, though, was that the same applied for uh, what's called leggedness, so whichever's your dominant leg. Now, normally, and I think in our study it was uh, at least 90%, for most people the leg is dominant on the same side as the arm. But we didn't find that people with leg onset ALS had any link to their dominant leg. So we had to try and explain that difference. And one way to look at that is to say, well, the way you use your arms is much more separate. You divide tasks much more into your dominant limb than you do your non-dominant. Whereas legs, you're tending to be walking, you're standing, uh, much more split between the two. Not many people uh, you know, kick a ball regularly in the daytime. Mm. Uh, and that was one explanation for it. And you had an, another explanation, didn't you? A, a more um, indirect one. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, well, this is something that I'm really fascinated by and is a subject of my research right now is I'm drawn to the idea that perhaps the brain is put together in a, in a different way for patients with ALS. Uh, and I, I looked at the literature to see if there'd anything been studied really in the cortex uh, or the wider brain on, on how handedness relates to that uh, and leggedness as well. And in fact, it seems pretty clear that the wiring of the brain, so-called connectivity of the brain, and also some of the supporting structures around uh, the neurons, so-called interneurons and inhibitory neurons, seem to be different uh, on the dominant hemisphere versus the non-dominant hemisphere in terms of handedness. And there's almost a feeling that there's a slightly looser, if I can use that term, a looser system on the dominant side, presumably allowing uh, perhaps slightly greater activity or favouring use on that side. When people have done stimulation studies, they find that the side of the brain for, for the dominant hand seems to be a, little, a bit less inhibited. The, the braking system, if you, if you will, is slightly looser uh, on that side, which is, probably has a good reason and is, underlies the reason that one favours that side. But because there's other evidence to suggest that those dampening mechanisms, those inhibitory mechanisms, are very profoundly lost in MND and ALS, um, the, the, the suggestion is, therefore, that that might be a vulnerability. Mm. I, mean, I must say that these are ideas that I'm trying to, to prove and trying to, to research, but 
the broad point is that I, I really not necessarily sure that it's actually simply just using the limb or exercise. I think it perhaps is reflecting a difference in structure. Mm. Could you tell us a bit more about any research that you've got coming up which will um, possibly you know, clear this up one way or the other? In terms of the, the question of whether patients are fitter, uh, we're using a, a hospital uh, record linkage study at the moment to, uh, to look at that. Um, this is a way of tracking patients' admissions to hospital uh, for various conditions, uh, and then we can see across hundreds of thousands of patients um, how that interacts with development of rare diseases like MND, uh, ALS. Uh, separately on the brain research, I'm using MRI uh, to look at both the structure but also the f what's called the functional connectivity, how different parts of the brain talk to each other. Uh, and that does suggest um, that uh, there may well be something underlying the way parts of the brain are talking to each other that may be different in the disease. And, of course, what I'd really like to know is, is it different before someone gets the disease? And so mm. looking at patients who are at risk of um, ALS uh, for genetic reasons, and those are very rare patients. This paper's the patient's choice for this month. Are there any messages that you, you would like to, to say to any patients out there who are possibly worried or don't quite know what to make of this research? I think the most important thing is that having seen hundreds of patients and uh, read thousands of sets of notes, um, I really uh, don't think that MND, ALS, is caused in any simplistic way by some sort of overactivity, so some event that someone pushed themselves too far and, and started this disease process. Um, I also think it's very important to say there's no evidence that continuing to exercise when you have uh, ALS is bad for you. And in many ways, if that makes you feel physically well and obviously keeps your joints supple, um, then that's a beneficial thing. Mm. What I think it's telling us, it's another clue about vulnerability. We need to explain why this disease starts where it does and how it spreads um, and ultimately you know who is the population who potentially could get ALS um, what's the the underlying substrate for that and I think that that group of people may turn out to be rather fit um, which of course in evolutionary terms is an advantage and it may be that what we're seeing is simply that with aging that becomes uh, a problem for a very small number. Sure. Thanks very much for, for talking to us and good luck with your future research. Hopefully we'll, we'll see more of it in JNMP soon. Thanks very much. And if you'd like to delve further into the papers we've discussed, they're available for free on jnmp.bmj.com. Join us next time for Neurology at the Airport, that is an investigation into neurological problems associated with air travel, and also controversial lumbar spinal instrumentation. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.